Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Celine. God's redemption over my life has led to many radical changes in me. One gift God has given me is a hunger for his word and a passion to share it with you. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God, but it also tells us all we need to know about ourselves, and we fail to open it and learn these great truths. A burden that weighs heavy on me is that many professing Christians don't know their identity in Christ. So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn who we are in Christ so we can step into all he's called us to be. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, episode nine of this Acts of the Holy Spirit series. I'm back and guess what? This is it. This is the final episode of the season. We, we wrap up the book of Acts and what a season it's been. And after this episode, we'll have covered everything. We walked through Acts 1, and we got a real understanding of what happened once the disciples of Jesus left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem as they were uh, commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. The 120 gathered together continually. They they opened the Old Testament scriptures. They prayed. They they sought God's guidance. They they got organized. They 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 prepared. And then we saw in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit came. And this was by God's design to inaugurate the the birth of the church friends we are the church and this is our story this is our history and we've seen so far through the lens of this holy book called the bible the birth of the church in acts 1 the disciples waited for the coming of the holy spirit in acts 2 he arrived in acts 1 the disciples were equipped for their ministry in acts 2 the disciples were empowered for their ministry in acts 1 the disciples were held back and made to wait And then in Acts 2, the disciples were sent out and Peter immediately preached his first sermon and the Holy Spirit convicted 3,000 hearts and the church went from a group of of 120 to 3,120 in one day. And then we spent our time in Acts 4 and we saw the church continue to expand as Peter and John faithfully and, and boldly stayed the course as they led the church. They healed and and they preached And the church continued to grow at a rapid pace. It grew so fast that the religious elite began to catch on. And this brought on real persecution. Guys, they began experiencing real opposition. And and that would only increase every day that went by. Why? Well, because the early church continued to defy man and comply with the Lord only. Guys, this, this was a serious offense to the religious leaders of the day. We then walked through Acts 5 and we saw the church... Had, had truly become a, a force. That they were under heavy persecution, so it was obvious that they were doing something right. But through this, Satan was active. We then came face to face with the, the first recorded incident of sin in the church. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember their, their sin of hypocrisy that led to, to God killing them right in front of the entire congregation? Yeah, it was intense. We then opened... Acts 6 through 7, and we saw Stephen preach a sermon that would lead to his stoning. Saul of Tarsus led the execution, and after this, he led the charge to wipe Christianity off the planet. And then in Acts 9, Saul would would ride to Damascus where he met the risen Jesus and was completely transformed, was literally humbled and knocked off his high horse. And this would be the day that Saul would be taken off the wide road it was headed toward destruction 
and would sovereignly be placed on the narrow road that leads to eternal life. On this day, the, the history of the church, it changed. All because one man was transformed. That the blasphemer Saul became the preacher Paul. A, a man filled with hate became an ambassador of love. The man who wrote execution papers for the disciples of Christ would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Guys, Paul's life will go down as the greatest gospel transformation story of all time. We walked through uh, the three missionary journeys in the, in the recent weeks and we, we dug into the story and we see all that Paul and his teams accomplished. Over 30 cities visited. Over 20 cities revisited. Many miles traveled, many churches established. Honestly, too many to name and count. Many disciples made. And not just disciples, but obedient disciples. Disciples who would go on to reproduce and multiply. I mean, guys, it's one thing to teach the things of Jesus, but it's another thing to teach the things of Jesus and also teach those people to obey the things of Jesus. Paul, Paul and the team had set a fire in Asia Minor. They set a fire in Macedonia. And his work there was finished. Now he was headed for Jerusalem where trouble awaited him. And he knew it. And many of us would call Paul crazy. But I wouldn't call him crazy. I would call him convinced. I'd call him courageous. I would call him confident in the things of God. I would call him a man who followed his convictions. We need to understand that God's greatest people have always believed their cause was worth dying for. And Paul was one of those people. Guys, we, we look at his parting words to the Ephesian elders. Acts 20, 38 tells us, it says, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Because this made the elders at, at Ephesus sad. And why would Paul say this? Well, because he was moving towards Jerusalem and in the back of his mind, he knew what awaited him there. We must understand that all along the way, everywhere he went, people kept saying, you know what's going to happen when you get to Jerusalem? And not only did people tell him, but the Holy Spirit kept telling him in every single city, the bonds and afflictions that awaited him. He knew it, but he had conviction. He had a mission and he was willing to sacrifice himself for the mission. And of course, where, where Paul was headed wasn't the safe place to go. It wasn't the safe thing to do. We know by now that all over the world, the hierarchy of Jerusalem hated Paul. Remember guys, from place to place throughout his years of ministry, we've seen him chased down. We've seen these, these Jews chase him and chase him and chase him and try to kill him. And now he's going from the frying pan to the fire. He's on his way to walk right into the main headquarters of the whole operation, Jerusalem itself. But Paul, he had conviction that gave him courage. Paul knew his purpose. Paul couldn't be redirected. He, he was going for it and nothing could stop him. Guys, Paul was willing to pay any price for his conviction. And for this, his conviction, it affected others. He, he left Ephesus with an objective. And if I'm honest, 
I don't think Paul lived one moment of his life idle. I don't think he ever lived without an objective. At, at this point, he was saying, I have to get to Jerusalem so I can get that done and then head to Rome. You know, he had just been in Corinth for those few months and he wrote the book of Romans. Romans 1 tells us Paul's objective at this point. Remember in Romans 1, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And as soon as I get to Jerusalem, I'll come to you in Rome so that I can go from you to Spain. And here's the reality. If Paul wasn't executed, he probably would have made it around the world. (laughs) Guys, if I'm honest, he probably would have discovered America. He was a madman. He was always on mission. So Acts 21 tells us that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's got the money for the, the Jerusalem church and the men from each area of the Gentile church, as well as Luke, who is writing everything down as they go. And we know they sailed on the coast, which indicates they were riding a smaller boat that hugged the coastline. They went from Miletus to, to coast to Patara. And in Patara, they would have gotten on a larger ship. And we see that because it would be a straight shot from Patara to Phoenicia. It would be a five-day sailing trip from Patara to Phoenicia, which was a coastal area of Palestine, which is modern-day Lebanon. And Acts 21, 3-4 tells us, that the ship arrived and, and they unloaded cargo and entire and they stayed there for seven days. And notice it says, and finding disciples. And I want to point out that Paul and the team didn't know these disciples. Paul didn't start this church entire. Indirectly, he had much to do with it, but he didn't start this church. And just a little side history that I thought was interesting. This church entire started out because of the overflow of the persecution of Stephen. If you read Acts 11, 19, it says that as a result of the persecution and execution of Stephen, the saints were scattered. They scattered into Phoenicia, into Cyprus, and into Antioch. And we already came to the conclusion that persecution in the church is is the way the church grows. And so in that moment during the scattering, the church was founded. Paul, even before he was saved, was a catalyst and was good for the growth of the church. The scriptures say they tarried for seven days. In other words, they spent time. They they got to know Paul. They fell in love with Paul sitting under his teaching and sitting under the fellowship. Guys, it was a sweet time. And when Paul and the team finished their stay with the disciples entire, they they departed and they went on their way. They stayed a night in in, in Ptolemus. And the next day they came to Caesarea and met up with Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the mighty seven from Acts 6. And the one responsible for evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Paul and the team stayed many days. And while they were there, Paul was told by a prophet, Agabus, that the Jews at Jerusalem were going to bind Paul up with his own belt and deliver him into the hands of the Romans. And and look at how Paul responds in Acts 21, 12 through 14. It says, when we, the team, heard this, we and the people there urged them, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Guys, Paul had a commitment to the goal. A commitment to the objective. A, a commitment unto death. 
Remember, Paul lived every moment with kingdom objectives and he was intentional. This is why he will forever be the greatest missionary of all time. This is why he experienced the most success. It wasn't his looks. It wasn't his charisma or his smarts or status. It was his commitments to the convictions he had for the Lord Jesus and he knew his why and it drove him from the time he was saved until the time he was beheaded and he didn't let anything take him off course. Even the threat of death. He, he was ready to die for Christ. And the reason we as a church today struggle with expressing in our own lives the, the, the level of conviction that we see in Paul is because we don't live with that kind of object-oriented conviction that Paul lived with. Guys, most of us don't know our why. We, we don't know our objective. I mean, just think about this. If I were to ask you right now, what's your objective? Well, what's your why? What would you respond? Exactly. Most of us would be dumbfounded. Most would say, I don't know. I'm going to church tomorrow. I, I got a Bible study to attend this week. I might share the gospel on social media. Guys, please don't hear me wrong. Those things are great things. But if we want to be real, many of us don't know our identity in Christ and our calling and we lack conviction because we have been lulled to sleep by the mundane Christian life. Look, knowing your objectives and your why as you follow Christ, that's what leads to conviction. Conviction leads you to be courageous and, and get in the game. It leads you to get off the sidelines. Guys, I can get all fired up and tell you about how to be courageous. But without objectives and, and without conviction, what are you going to be courageous about? Understand something. No one gets courageous by sitting on the sideline. You only get courageous when you get in the game. And if we're honest, many in our Christian culture are not in the game. But this wasn't Paul. He lived in the game 24-7. And if we want to mimic Paul, we need to understand how he ticked. He was built different. Paul never lived a day of his life from the time of his conversion on that, that road to Damascus experience to the time they cut his head off that I can find in scripture where he wasn't going somewhere to do something that was so consuming that he would die for it. He always had an objective and, and, and it convicted him. And that conviction consumed him to the point of action. And it was his belief in the gospel and his ability to count the cost that gave him courage. He, he was truly convinced that Jesus and his mission was the true treasure. He, he counted all things rubbish. He counted all things trash because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. When he wrote that in Philippians, that was his true mentality. And we as the church today are so willing to throw that verse around, but have we ever considered what it means? Guys, we must understand what he meant by that. Paul's objectives and whys fueled his convictions. And his convictions fueled his courage to move. And he moved even against everyone's advice and even possibly against the Spirit's promptings into Jerusalem where major trouble awaited him. I mean, we see in Acts 21, 9 through 11, that the warning not to go to Jerusalem could have been a prophecy. Supposedly the Spirit of God could have been speaking here. 
I, I can't confirm this, but the fact that, that is, it is mentioned in scripture shows me that the Lord could have been warning Paul not to go. But he went anyway. Was he disobedient? I mean, I don't think so. His motives were pure. And it's impossible to get an impure act out of a, uh, a pure motive. So I would, instead of calling it disobedience, I would call it maybe a mistake out of love. Guys, he loved the Jewish church. And he loved the Jewish people there. And his objectives and convictions led him there. Here's the deal. If we're going to make mistakes, let us make those kind, right? Selfless acts out of love. But eventually Paul arrives in Jerusalem. It's about 57 AD. We know it's likely Pentecost. It doesn't say it's Pentecost, but we know that Paul said he wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost in Acts 20, 16. He wanted to be there at a time when all the people were congregated together. He knew that it was important. And we see as we keep moving through this, this chapter that there were tons of people in the city as well as the temple. So we assume it's Pentecost. Acts 21, 17 says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So Paul arrives. He, he's, he's loaded with offerings from all over, as well as a wonderful report of, of all that God had done. And with Paul is a group of Gentile converts that had been one to Christ who are representatives of the love of each of the Gentile congregations throughout Galatia, throughout Macedonia, throughout Greece. And just a little side note to point out, what occurs in the next few days in Jerusalem takes up the next three chapters in Acts. And then there's a lot of details, but the de detail I want you to understand is what you're going to see in the next few chapters of Acts is the last of, of Paul's ministry as a free man. From Acts 21, 27 on, Paul becomes, as he called himself in Ephesians 6, 20, an ambassador in chains. Guys, from here on out, he's a prisoner, which doesn't minimize his ministry in any way at all. His imprisonment does not change his why. He, he goes on doing what he always did. He, he continues to fulfill his ministry. But before he's arrested, Paul meets with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church to share the news of what God had been doing during those three missionary journeys. They communed, that they enjoyed fellowship. The text says that the Jerusalem church received them gladly. Why? Well, for a few reasons. One, they brought them money. Guys, this church was poor. It's, it said the poorest of all the churches. They were some needy saints and they needed support badly. But more importantly, the church of Christ was growing all over the world. And this group of men that came with, with Paul were a reflection of this. And these congregations from all over the Gentile world were showing them, the Jerusalem church, a tremendous act of love. So here we have Paul and James and the elders were all present. And it's important to point out that it was James and the elders. It doesn't mention James and the apostles. It mentions elders. You remember when, when we left Peter and the gang in Acts 12 and started to follow Paul's journeys? Peter and the other apostles, they were still in Jerusalem. But those first few episodes of this season, we saw that the Jerusalem church was led by who? It was led by the apostles. Even when you read about the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, it says Paul went to Jerusalem and he met with who? He met with the apostles. But at this point, it's James and the elders because the apostles had raised up leaders and they were gone. 
And we ask what happened to the apostles? I mean, did they die? Well, not at this point. They, they were gone doing the same thing Paul had done. They went out preaching all over the place. They, they were on mission. They were obeying the mandate that Jesus had given them almost 30 years prior. So here Paul and the team were. They showed up and fellowship begins. Paul passes out the money. He, he gives the report of all that God had done and was continuing to do. And we can't just speed past this point. Acts 21, 19 through 20 says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And guys, this shows the humility of Paul. Paul could have beaten his chest. He could have shown off, but he didn't. He continually talked about all that happened. And you and I know by this point that Paul had accomplished an awful lot, but he never took credit for anything. It was all God, all the time. And those present, they followed suit. The scripture says that everyone present glorified who? Paul? No, they glorified the Lord. The Lord alone is worthy. Because he alone was who sustained the work. He deserved the praise. He always deserves the praise. So the next day, Paul takes these men and they enter the temple. And this was the time of purification. And understand that Paul had just returned from extended stays in Gentile lands and was considered ceremonially unclean. And why would this matter to Paul in light of freedom that followers of Jesus have from ceremonial ritual, rituals? Well, it didn't matter from the standpoint of his faith in Christ. But in Acts 21, 20 through 21, James had warned Paul that there were Jews present in the town that had been spreading lies about him. They were saying that Paul was teaching people to forsake their Jewish heritage, as well as Moses. I mean, guys, this was a big deal. And who were these Jews? The Judaizers. We talked about them a few episodes back. These were Jews from Asia Minor, likely Ephesus and Laodicea and Philadelphia and Thyatira and Sardis and Smyrna. That they had been chasing Paul for the longest, looking to harm him. That they were the, the circumcision people. That they believed Jesus was Messiah, but they believed you couldn't follow Jesus unless you were a circumcised Jew. So if you were a Gentile, you had to get circumcised because to become a Jew, that was what it took. And then you could come to Jesus. And once you did, you had to keep the Mosaic law. So these instigators were present in town and they were looking for Paul. And they were in the temple telling the crowds, Paul had forsaken his heritage. He opposed the law. He was defiling the temple. That they were telling people in attendance that Paul was a heretic. That they were undermining his efforts. And it was all lies. And these are the lies they were spreading and it was upsetting the majority. So Paul is here in the temple partaking in these ceremonial rituals to prove that he had not forsaken his heritage. And things were about to go down. And a little side note, I love... Paul's willingness to meet these people where they were at, but I really believe this was Paul's downfall. I mean, his love for the Jewish people really pushed him to take part in this. And him taking part in this would lead to his arrest and really the end of his freedom that he had enjoyed since Acts 9. I mean, his heart was in the right place. I know that he only wanted to really appease the Jewish Christians, and so he, he was encouraged to go to the temple and fulfill this Nazarite vow with these four other guys. 
he was encouraged to to pay the bill for the whole thing in hopes that you know maybe these Jewish Christians would would see him do this and say man hey if if he would do all this he certainly can't be as anti-Jewish as we've been led to believe and so he did this and and I'm convinced though the text says nothing about it that this probably had a, a positive effect on the Jewish Christians present but on the other side I know for certain that it had no effect on the Jewish non-Christians, none whatsoever. And we're about to be introduced uh, to the mob who were wild maniacs. We're about to be introduced to those who were in a frenzy to murder the Apostle Paul. So we see that this pro- the process of, of purification took seven days. This Nazarite vow was a Jewish custom of expressing gratitude to God for, for a special deliverance. And it was now the seventh day and it was coming to a close. And at the end of the seven days, they offered sacrifices and it was, it was done. Acts 21, 27 through 28 says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So in other words, all hell broke loose. Acts 21.30 says, Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. So who seized Paul? Well, it was the Judaizers I just described. The, the ones who have been chasing him for the longest time. The, the Judaizers from most of the churches in Asia Minor. And when these Judaizers saw Paul in the temple, man, they stirred up the people. The Greek term used here means uh, to confuse. So they confuse the people. And just for context, understand something. It's said that there were up to 2 million people moving around in Jerusalem during Pentecost. So there were huge crowds in the city at this very moment. So the Judaizers confused the crowds and this led them to lay hands on Paul. Paul is here finishing up his vows and, and, and they descend on him. They grab him and they drag him out of the temple. So simply, here's the picture. These men had Paul seized in front of the crowds and they, they yell out, Hey, this man right here is against the people. He's against the law. He's against God and Moses. He's against the temple. And these were all blatant lies. And this, this flipped everyone out because they were all there to celebrate those very things. And they were buying what the Judaizers were selling. So here Paul was being beaten by this mob. And fortunately for Paul, in the great providence of God, his, his life wasn't over yet. God had some days yet to extend his ministry. And so God activated the Roman police, and now we will see Paul's arrest. So picture this going on right now. And right off of this crazy scene sat Fort Antonia, and it had a, a great tower. And from the tower, there was a clear observation of all that was going on. And during this time of year, there were over a thousand Roman soldiers who were highly trained and skilled riot squads. And understand that one thing the Roman government demanded was civil order. And when they saw all these shenanigans going on, they responded and trust me, it was quick. It didn't take but minutes. So likely at this point, for the past few minutes, a mob of people were pounding Paul, kicking him hitting him with fists to the face, and their goal was to murder him in cold blood. This is the reality. 
But the Roman riot squad shows up. And Acts 21, 31 through 33 tells us what happens next. It says, and as they were seeking to kill him, the, the mob, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He took the soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune, speaking of the mob, when the mob saw the, tribe, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was, meaning the chief, inquired who he was and what he had done. So the chief here assumes Paul is guilty because why else would the crowds be reacting in this manner? Now, what I want to do is pause and, and recall a verse from Acts 21, 11. And if we read it, it says, A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt, that's you, Paul, and deliver you into the hands of the Gentiles. So we see right now that this prophecy is coming to pass. The Jews had captured him. They, they've got him held and they deliver him to the Gentiles, the Romans who chain him up. But look at Acts 21, 36. It says, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed him crying out away with him. So the Roman guards literally had to put Paul over their heads and carry him up the stairs because the crowds were pulling and tearing and grabbing at Paul. These animals were disappointed because they had lost their prey. And notice they were chanting away with him. Guys, this is exactly what they were saying about Jesus 25 years earlier in this same very location. Away with him, it means kill him. That's what they were saying. Get rid of this guy. And the chief is over here trying to figure out what on earth Paul did. What on earth's happening? He can't figure out what Paul had done to deserve this or even who Paul was. Based on Acts 21, 37 through 40, it, the commander thought Paul was an, an Egyptian terrorist who had been captured by the crowds. Apparently, a few years prior to this, an Egyptian man had stirred up some trouble and opposition toward Jews, uh, towards the Jews in Rome, and then he had escaped. And this is who he thought he was. But then finally, the commander realized this wasn't the Egyptian terrorist, and this, this was Paul, Paul of Tarsus. And once Paul gets the commander's attention, Paul is now imploring him to allow him to speak to the crowds. Paul had something to say. Guys, this took boldness, didn't it? I mean, I thought about what I would have done in this situation. I mean, I would have asked the, the commander, just get me out of here, man. Get me to safety. Put me anywhere but here. <laughs> but we have to understand that Paul was just saved from death because this crowd wanted to beat him to death. And if the Roman guards didn't show up, they would have succeeded. But Paul said, I would like to say something to these people. Paul only knew how to deal with the situation one way. That was to confront it. And Paul was given permission. And I know that the commander gave him permission because he wanted to get the truth. So he might, might as well let Paul say something to see what he had to say. So when Paul was given permission, he stood on the stairs. And a little side note, look at how Paul turns this negative situation into a positive one. But Paul accepted this as being from God and Paul knew he was right in the will of God. You know how most of us handle negative situations? We cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why, why would you let the devil do this to me? 
No, friends, we are to follow the example of Paul and we accept situations, good or bad, and they are from God and we use them as a platform to glorify him. And this is what Paul is about to do. Here he is at the top of the stairs with this huge crowd in front of him. And the crowd had pushed all the way up the stairs wanting to kill him. And the soldiers at this point, they're surrounding Paul. And Acts 22.1 tells us what Paul said as he addressed this crowd. He said, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And this word defense is the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense of. This, this is his apology, his, his, his speech in defense. Paul is about to give this crowd a testimony of his experience and what God had done in his life. How God transformed his life radically. And Paul gives a powerful testimony about how he met Jesus in a real way on the road to Damascus. And he did this in their language, Aramaic. And when he began speaking, it was silent. I mean, guys, you could have heard a pin drop. And Paul dropped truth on them. And it was a jaw-dropping defense. You should go read this, this section of the text. And as you read it, understand the Bible only shares a short version of what Paul said. I'm sure Paul shared much more with this crowd, but we need to see how the crowds received this apologia, how they received this defense. Well, Acts 22, 22 tells us how they received it. It says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and Flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. I mean, wow. Here's what we've seen in the book of Acts. We are nine episodes in at this point, And what's the common thread we've seen throughout? Whenever the gospel has been presented, there was always a negative factor, a hater or haters in the crowds. It was never easy and it will never be easy. Friends, sooner or later, we have to realize that if we're going to confront the world for Jesus, if we're going to go toe to toe in Satan's domain and proclaim the truth of the gospel, there's going to be opposition. So we might as well realize it and get down to business. And this was, this was the cycle of Paul's ministry. And here he was again, standing against opposition, rescued from death, but about to be flogged. Flog for what? For standing for Jesus. But for the sake of time and getting through the end of Acts and the end of this season, we have to speed up. But I would encourage you to take time and go read deeper into the details because they're good. And they paint a vivid picture of what Paul truly endured at this stage of his life. But moving along, as Paul's about to be flogged and thrown into prison, he pulls out his Roman citizenship card. As he always does, just at the right time. And you guys, we must recall what he did in Philippi, remember? Right at the end there, he waited till all was said and done. And then they were trying to get him out of town. And Paul was like, nope, I need to need you to tell your leaders I'm a Roman citizen. What you did to me was wrong. And man, it stirred up a bunch of, bunch of stress on their part, made him anxious. Well, understand at this time, when he pulls out his Roman citizenship card, it freaks these Roman guards out. Remember, since Paul was a Roman citizen and what was happening to him was it was unlawful that they had to change the plans. So Paul was released from his bonds or his chains and he stood before the Sanhedrin to defend himself. Now we recall who the Sanhedrin are, right? 
The, the Sanhedrin was composed of, of the local elites, including members of the high priestly family, the scribes, the lay elders. And remember, there were 71 of them to be exact. And Paul stood before these men just as Jesus did, j just as Peter and John did. And he essentially stood on trial. And this would be really essentially the remainder of his life. And just know that from here on out to the end of the book, he's a prisoner in some sense or another. And will also give six different defenses of himself. But on this day, he stood before the council made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And Acts 23.1 tells us how the second part of his defense began. First part of his defense was to the Jewish crowds. We just went through that. And here we see the second part of his defense. And looking intently at the council, Paul said this, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. In other words, Paul is here saying, I have lived in good conscience. Everything I've ever done, I've done in good faith towards God. And that hasn't changed since I became a Christian. I'm still obedient to what I believe is the voice of God. Guys, Paul feels no guilt as he stands before this council, though, though he's guilty in their eyes. And this was a tremendous statement. To them, he, he's a heretic. He's, he's an apostate. He's a traitor. To, the, to them, Paul is full of ego. But to Paul... He knew he was a blood-bought follower of Jesus, so he stood in freedom. Something the Sanhedrin didn't have. So they didn't understand how and why Paul could say such a thing. Well, we know what happens next. Conflict. Acts 23.2 tells us, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike Paul on the mouth. Now understand, this was not like a love tap. This was not just a smack across the face. This was a full-on blow to the face. It was vicious and devastating. We must understand that the high priest violated the law here. Paul hadn't even been accused of any crime, let alone proven guilty of anything. And so punching Paul was, it was absolutely out of bounds. And so Paul in anger says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? So in other words, what Paul's saying is God's going to punish you for sitting at the seat of authority in the law and violating the law, you hypocrite. So, so here was Paul. He had lost his, his cool. And this was actually a, a sinful moment for Paul. This shows that Paul was human and fell short. Verbal abuse is unnecessary, even if the high priest was a whitewashed wall. You don't say it, but here's what's happening. Paul's flesh was rising up. But scripture shows us Paul submitted to the word of God and apologized. Acts 23, 5 says, And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here Paul is quoting Exodus twenty two twenty eight. He said he was sorry. He condemned himself in front of the whole court. He didn't play ignorant. He didn't, he didn't act immature. He did the mature thing. This showed how spiritually mature that Paul was. And what does this mean for us? I mean, listen, the, the best thing is, is, is not to sin at all. But if you do, confess it immediately. And this is what Paul did here. You will sin. I will sin. It's inevitable. But when you and I are spiritually mature, we recognize it immediately and we deal with it immediately. Here's wisdom for you when it comes to sin. Don't ever think of your sin in relation to how bad other people are. 
you will always find others who are worse than you. Compare your sin with the absolute holiness of God every single time. Let Jesus be your standard, not any other human. And, and this is what Paul's doing here. Pa Paul is admitting his sin and he apologizes. So after Paul admits his sin, after he apologizes in wisdom, he then turns the Sanhedrin against each other. And how does he do this? Well, he says one sentence. Acts 23, 6 tells us, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So what does that mean? Well, here's what's going on. There are both Pharisees and Sadducees present in the 71. The only time they get along is when they meet the, in the Sanhedrin. The rest of the time, they fight nonstop. They are divided and there always was friction between the Sanhedrin, uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. S simply put, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, neither angel or spirit, but the Pharisees believed in both. Paul knew the Pharisees held the majority here, so he connected himself to them. He, he had won, essentially won the Pharisees over by being a Pharisee. I mean, how wise is this? So, so Paul just calmly starts a mini civil war right there in their midst. Acts 23.9 tells us the outcome of this wise move. The, the Pharisees protested and found no evil in Paul. Chaos erupts and the commander orders the soldiers to take Paul by force and bring him into the barracks. In other words, get him out of there before something bad happens. Now, now take a moment and think about something. Paul had just been through three riots all directed at him, and really escaped death three times. First, he, he tried to pacify the Jewish Christians. That ended in a riot. Next, he tried to give testimony of what God had done in his life to the Jewish crowd in the temple court, and that ended in a riot. Lastly, he tried to give testimony before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and that ended in a riot. And now he sits alone in the barracks. I mean, I can only assume Paul is, is pretty much over it at this point. I mean, how frustrated would you be in his shoes? Guys, I would have been more than frustrated. Exasperated is a better word. I would have wanted to give up. And I'm sure this is how Paul felt. But the Lord Jesus comes to him in person. Again, just at the right time. The scripture tells us that Jesus appeared to Paul here. Acts 23.11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. So this, this is the, the fifth of six visions that Paul had of Jesus and all of them coming at crucial times in his ministry. Je Jesus appears to give Paul comfort and encouragement, e even confidence. I mean, look at what, what Jesus guaranteed. He, he said he would make it to Rome. Hey friends, did you know the mission behind Broken and Chosen? I once was lost, but Jesus found me and redeemed my life. And since he saved me, he's been teaching me who I am as his follower. I am chosen. I am part of his holy nation. I am a royal priest. I am his special possession. He called me out of darkness and into his light to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. And if you're in Christ, that's your identity too. So follow us on social media to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And subscribe to this podcast for a deep dive through God's word to learn who you are in Christ. 
and check out our apparel in our shop at brokenandchosen.com to wear your identity in Christ. And lastly, if Broken and Chosen is blessing you, would you do us a favor? Would you leave us a review and also tell a friend about us? So the Jews conspire a plan to kill Paul, and, and this gets back to the commander. Acts 23.12 says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So these zealots are disappointed at having let Paul slip through their fingers. Let, they let, let Paul slip out of their grasp. And so these group of, of Jews determine um, that they're, they're going to engineer a plot to kill Paul. And this time he's not getting away. And they're, they're serious about it as they intended by the fact that it says they bound themselves under an oath. In other words, they devoted themselves to destruction and said, let us be cursed by God if we don't get Paul. And what was the plot? Well, simply 40 men are going to assassinate Paul. That the Sanhedrin is going to ask the Roman commander in charge of the thousand men at Fort Antonio to send Paul down to meet again, to stand before the Sanhedrin. And on the way, Paul's going to be ambushed and murdered by those 40 men. Bottom line, they wanted Paul dead. But we find out in Acts 23, 16, that Paul had a sister because Paul's nephew caught wind of this plot. He hears about it. He runs into the barracks, tells Paul. And, and, and after Paul finds out, he sends his nephew back to tell the commander. And the nephew goes and tells the commander what's up. So at 9 p.m. that night, the commander calls for two centurions and 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to transport Paul safely to Caesarea. I mean, first of all, this is some serious protection. I mean, if you don't see God's providence over this situation, you're, you're completely missing it. So Paul, heavily protected, is transferred to Caesarea, which is pretty much a, about a 60-mile journey, where he remains in prison for two years. Guys, Paul sits in prison for two years. Over what? I don't know. I still, to this day, don't know why they put him in prison. But... We know that Jesus promised Paul that he would make it to Rome. And so Paul waits two long years in prison. And you have to understand, this is a huge block of time for a man with this kind of burning eagerness. You factor in, he's, he's innocent. But through all of this, Paul never wavers. He never doubts. He never begins to, to, to distrust God. And during that two years, Paul gives testimony to the governor Felix. And in a little context of who Felix was, he was the governor of Judea. He ruled from 52 to 59 AD. Understand Felix was a, a, a bad man. He was bad in every sense. He was corrupt. Um, he stole his wife. His wife was a 15-year-old girl who was married to another man, married to a king. But Felix lusted after her, seduced her, and stole her. I read this quote about Felix uh, from the historian Tacitus who said, he, Felix, had the office of a king and he had he ruled it with the mind of a slave. Felix had opportunities and, and he blew it. Felix was, uh, was a great illustration of a lost opportunity. And here's the story. Paul lived in Felix's house for two years. During that time he was uh, in, in prison, he lived in Felix's house for two years. I mean, can you imagine how much Paul shared with him about all things Jesus? And, and Felix would ultimately reject all that Paul stood for and proclaimed. He completely missed the opportunity. But through all of that, 
Felix doesn't find Paul guilty. I mean, the gospel was shared in, in full and Felix procrastinated. It's now 59 AD. And after those two years in prison in Caesarea, Paul appears before Governor Festus and King Herod Agrippa II. He, he shares his testimony to them. Again, he shares the gospel. They pretty much think Paul is just insane. Acts 26, 24 says, as, uh, and as he was saying these things, speaking of Paul, you know, speaking his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But isn't, isn't this how unbelievers look at biblical Christians? Unbelievers look at biblical Christians as insane, radical, zealots. But through this, Acts 26, 32 tells us Paul's verdict. It says, then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. As Paul was innocent, they could have let him go, but they didn't. And there wasn't any reason to appeal to Caesar now. There wasn't any case at this point. Caesar hadn't heard a word about Paul and didn't need to. And not only this, but the gospel had been presented to them and they rejected it. And what hindered these men? It was popularity. It was the prestige. It was their reputation. It was their ego. They were vile. They were self-centered. They were unbelieving, prideful. They were ignorant. They were indifferent. The same things that, that hinder people today. You, you know what you and I can learn from this? Here's the application moment. God didn't call us to save people. He, he called you and I to preach Christ. He'll do the saving. All he asks of us is to be faithful. Our service is to God and it isn't based on the response of men. And after all of this, after two years of being wrongfully accused and sitting in prison, Paul is shipped off to Rome. He, he's going to make it to Rome just as Jesus promised. I mean, maybe not as Paul envisioned, but nonetheless, he's going to make it there. And with that, the voyage to Rome began. And look at the first line of Acts 27.1. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul. So the we indicates that the writer of Acts is accompanying Paul. So we know Luke is here. He, he's witnessing this entire voyage firsthand. And not only is Luke here, but Paul's dear brother in Christ, Aristarchus from Thessalonica is here. So we know as Paul got on this boat, he was in the company of two very dear friends, two Christian brothers, Luke and Aristarchus. And just a side note, it was unheard of for a prisoner to have companions on a prison route to be tried at Rome. It wasn't allowed, but God in his provision and grace over Paul's life made this possible. So let's be honest here. Luke and Aristarchus accompanying Paul is a true picture of brotherly love. I mean, we know that true brotherly love is not a feeling. It's, it's sacrifice. I mean, understand that this, this boat ride wasn't a seven-day Royal Caribbean cruise to the islands, guys. This was no vacation. This was dangerous, and it was a long journey on a clumsy and awkward Roman sailboat with a bunch of prisoners on it. This trip was going to be at least weeks, and when it's all said and done, it will be months before they get to Rome. And yet they did this because they love Paul. But before we look at this journey, let's understand that it's, it's around mid-August. 
And why is that important to understand? Well, it was risky to set out on a voyage at this time. From November to the end of March, nobody crossed the Mediterranean Sea. The winds were extremely strong and the sea was very rough during this time, so shipping ceased during this time. It was a gamble to sail in the open sea from September to November, and it was off limits from November to March. So we know that going on this voyage was extremely risky, and they were, they were flirting with trouble. So they boarded a small ship, one that hugged the coast. They left Caesarea, sailed up the coast about 70 miles to Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. And Acts 27.3 says, The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So in other words, they landed in Sidon and notice the text says Julius, the centurion in charge on the ship, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends, which were Christians, other believers to be cared for. Guys, we can't just speed past this passage. The boat docked. The guy in charge allowed Paul as a prisoner to get off the ship and go inland to the local church there in Sidon. This took trust, and it was obvious that he knew Paul was an innocent man. It's likely Festus may have alerted Julius of Paul's innocence, so Julius treated Paul kindly. But the question I had was, why did Paul need to be cared for? To be cared for, or in other translations, to be refreshed, referred to a medical term. It had to do with medical care, and this indicates that Paul was likely sick. So understand, friends, at this moment, Paul was a sick man. I mean, think about it. It had been two years of being falsely accused as a prisoner. And I'm sure this affected his diet and his rest. It probably affected the chronic ailments that he already had. So Julius allows him the privilege of going to be with the local church who ministered to him and care for him. And after that week, Acts 27, 4 says, And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the, the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So with that, they left Sidon. And due to heavy winds, they had to take the long way to the next destination. To gain protection from the wind, they sailed under the lee of Cyprus through the wide strait to the east of Cyprus and west of Syria. And after passing the most easterly point of the, the island of Cyprus, they headed west between Cyprus and the mainland. Cilicia was on the south coast of modern Turkey, including Paul's hometown Tarsus. Pamphylia was, was the region west of Cilicia, including the city of Perga. And these were all cities that Paul was, was very familiar with as he spent time there sharing the gospel on all those journeys. They would land at Myra, which was a port in the province of Lycia where they changed ships. The ship they transferred to was from Alexandria, Egypt, and was headed for Italy carrying wheat. This ship was, um, was much larger and would be more suitable for longer journeys. So the transfer is made, and now Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus are on a ship with, with a total of 276 people. Now, this trek from Sidon to Myra, according to historians, took about nine days. Acts 27, 7-9 says, We sailed solely for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So in other words, they left Myra and sailed very slowly west the inside passage between Rhodes and the mainland there of Asia Minor. The winds had picked up and it was becoming dangerous, so they tried to port in Cnidus and couldn't, so they, they had to let the ship go. They couldn't handle the wind, and so they had to go down around the treacherous Cape uh, Salmone on the east coast tip of Crete. With much difficulty, they made it to Fairhavens, where they docked. And understand that the harbor of Fairhavens 
was not suitable to spend the winter as it offered no protection from the winds blowing from the east. So it's safe to say that they weren't exactly excited to be there, but at least they were docked and they, they weren't at sea at this point. I mean, they docked out of desperation at this point, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't all that exciting. The writing was on the wall. It was, honestly, it was probably not best to sail at this point. Paul, Paul, I mean, the scriptures say Paul was questioning the whole thing. I mean, look at Acts 27, 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, also known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, was already over. And if you know anything about Jewish history, you, you, you will know that the Day of Atonement occurs at the beginning of October. So at this point, it's October 59 AD. And at this point, they are well into the dangerous season for trying to cross the open sea. I mean, any attempt at this point is now more than a gamble. It's almost a guarantee. Guaranteed destruction. So knowing all of this, look what Paul says. Look at Acts 27.10, where Paul says, Sirs, uh, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also our lives. In other words, I know you have moves to make, but me, we might want to stay put for the winter. Now, Paul, Paul's not a sailor, but he's been on a lot of ships. And at this point, I mean, he's already been through three shipwrecks and he's not looking forward to a fourth. The text goes on to say the centurion and the captain paid zero attention to Paul and knew spending time at Fairhavens would not be suitable. In other words, it wasn't a good place to spend the winter. Nothing was happening there. The captain, who is the owner of the ship, the boat, wanted to make money off of this deal. And he, he knew if he stayed there for months, he was going to have to fund everyone's, everyone's stay. He wanted to get these supplies and these printer, prisoners to Italy ASAP and get his money. So he, he, instead of taking the advice of Paul, he wants to take a gamble and he wants to try to make it. And, and the captain knew if they couldn't get to Italy, they, they would turn towards Phoenix, which was a much better port town to dock at for the season. And Phoenix was, was about 40 miles west on the island of Crete. So the captain put the ship out to sea and according to Acts 27, 13, the winds were blowing gently and all seemed okay. But one verse later, we see a drastic change. We see the word, but. Gentle winds were blowing, but then came a nor'easter and blew them out to sea. And then this was, this, this wind was no normal wind. It was so fierce and it was one of the greatest feared winds of all winds for any captain of any ship. It was a wind of a hurricane or a typhoon. Guys, they were in a hurricane. And you have to understand, this wooden ship was stuck in the midst of a hurricane bobbing up and down and being pummeled and beaten by the northeast wind. Acts 27.15 tells us what the result was. It says, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So in other words, they lost control of the ship and the wind drove the ship out to sea and they had to deal with the consequences of their decision. That's, that's what happened. And the thought of this is absolutely terrifying. So in desperation, they began throwing their cargo and their baggage overboard to lighten the ship. Acts 27.20 says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Hope Hope was lost at this point. And this is where God showed up. No one had resources. No one had hope. No one could turn to anything or anybody. 
everyone completely hopeless. And this is when God showed up. When man is completely at the end of themselves. And who does he speak through? Right. He speaks through Paul. So Paul steps up. Acts 27, 21 says, since they had been without food for a long time. And let me stop right here. 14 days to be exact. It had been two weeks since they had eaten. And was it seasickness? Was it lack of desire? I don't know. But what we do know is, I doubt anyone felt like eating after this journey. But Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So here was Paul's I told you moment. And I'm sure the entire ship remembered when Paul urged them not to go. So at this point, this, this established Paul's credibility. First, Paul tells the people on the boat to be of good cheer. And I'm thinking, sure, Paul, considering what they're going through at this point, this had to be a moment where the entire ship looked at Paul like he was absolutely insane. But Paul continues, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So in other words, God is introducing himself to these people. That they are in a position where they have nothing else to do but listen. And I think it's safe to say they are looking for a God. Because only God can help them at this point. But notice Paul tells them they must run aground on an island. And the chances of this are slim to none. And I want to point out something amazing. And that would be God's sovereignty. Think about this. This ship is out in the open sea. Hurricane force winds are blowing them all over the place. They have their sail down, which means they go where the wind blows. And the scriptures say that they couldn't see the stars for weeks. They couldn't see anything day or night, which means what? They couldn't navigate. But yet we know based on the text that they arrive at Malta. Now take one moment and flip to the back of your Bible to the map of Paul's missionary journeys. And look out west, south of Italy. You see that little dot there? Y yes, that, that's Malta. So you mean to tell me that this ship sailed on a direct course for that little dot? Yeah, okay. I mean, you, you, you tell me who was steering this ship. This was all in the plan of God. And trust me, God had a plan. So one of two things happen now. It, it either happens as Paul says, or it happens as Paul, as it doesn't. And, and if it happens as Paul said, it's from God. If it doesn't happen as Paul said, then it's not. Do you realize the chances of landing on an island, losing the ship, losing the cargo, and everybody's life being saved? Guys, it's staggering. But God is setting up to display himself. And God did. Acts 27, 39 through 44 describes the details of how this went down. It was day, and they noticed the bay with the beach. This is known today as St. Paul's Bay. The plan? To run the ship ashore. This was what we know as a sandbar, and they ran the ship into the sandbar. So here the bow of the ship is stuck in the sandbar, and it was still a great distance from the shore, and the tremendous hurricane waves are just smashing the, the stern of the ship and splintering it into pieces. And there they were, stuck while the ship disintegrated. And here comes the great ending to all of this. 
The scriptures say the soldiers were afraid of not only losing their lives, but losing the prisoners. Because when a Roman soldier lost his prisoner, he had to take the prisoner's sentence. So the soldiers began to panic. So they, they come up with a plan to kill the prisoners so they don't escape. But the centurion moves in and saves Paul's life. And the rest of the prisoners can thank Paul too because they were all spared. I think the centurion realized that Paul was God's man and they needed him so everyone lived. And at this point, everyone swam to shore. And Acts 27, 44 tells us, And so it was that all were brought safely to land, exactly as God had told Paul it would happen. And it happened just as God said it would. So at this point, it's approximately 60 AD. Paul and everyone headed for Rome is shipwrecked and on this small island of Malta. The first thing we see is pagan hospitality. Acts 28, 2 says, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Understand, it's mid-November. It's freezing cold. Everyone's soaking wet and exposed to the wind. And the Maltese come out and they they prepare for them a fire. And when you're going to make a fire for 276 people, that's really a bonfire. So the Maltese people welcome these exhausted shipwrecked visitors. And and the, the scriptures say they're hanging out. And Acts 28.3 tells us Paul went, went that over to, to get some sticks to put on the fire, to keep the fire blazing. And when doing so, a viper came out and, and bit Paul. So now Paul has been bitten by this deadly snake and it's hanging off of his hand. And it's a, ven- a venomous snake. Extremely poisonous. And everyone there thought Paul was a dead man, but it, it's like Paul was immune to the venom. But we know Paul was God's man. And he already established that Paul was getting to Rome and nothing was going to prevent God's word from coming true. So needless to say, the, the venom didn't phase him. Well, after three months uh, of, of being stationed at Malta, after all the public healings of the Maltese and the friendships that Paul made, I'm sure Paul preached the gospel even though it's not recorded. They set sail on another ship from Alexandria, Egypt, which had been sheltering over, over the winter in Malta. This was now the third ship on the journey to Rome. They headed for Syracuse, which was an important historical city on the coast of uh, east coast of Sicily. They stayed there three days, and it's said that Paul may have started a church there. And after three days, they left for Regium, from Regium to, to Patoli, which is modern-day Naples. And then the city of Patoli sat on the Via Appia, which was the major Roman road that led to Rome. So Paul left the ship here and was taken up the Via Appia to Rome. The scriptures say Christians from Rome traveled and met Paul and escorted him into the city in the same way as a visiting uh, dignitary would be welcomed. Meeting these Roman believers was, man, it was a joyous moment for Paul. Finally, he was in Rome as he longed to be. And understand, when they came to Rome, there was about 2 million people packed into this small area. It's 60 AD. Nero's the emperor of Rome at this time. And historians say that a million were slaves and a million were known as citizens. The vast majority lived in abject poverty. The money and the power in Rome resided in the hands of the few. And when Paul got there, he stepped into a, a, a very depraved place. Nothing he hadn't seen before, but understand that Paul's interest was not um, economical. It wasn't cultural. It wasn't um, sociological. It was purely to evangelize. He, he desired guys to win everyone to Jesus. And Paul was, was given the right to live in his own house under guard. He was essentially on house arrest. So imagine this, Paul is chained to a guard somewhere in a house in the middle of those 2 million people and he continued to minister in chains. And to him, this was no problem. 
He had learned to do that very well. But we see that Acts comes to an end here. Acts 28, 30 through 31 tells us he, Paul, lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And with that, the, books of, the book of Acts closes abruptly. And we don't ever hear what happened to Paul or the church. And I think this is by design of the Holy Spirit. It's a story that has no end. It just stops. It, it doesn't end. The record, I guess it just ceases to be written. In other words, the story goes on. But we do know that during this two years under house arrest, Paul writes letters to the churches at Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. He also wrote a letter to Philemon. Some say Paul embarked on another missionary trip after he was released from house arrest. According to 2 Timothy 4.16, his first trial in Rome, it ended favorably. Once released, he did go back to Greece and Macedonia. For Macedonia, he would write his first letter to Timothy, who, who was now pastoring in Ephesus. It's believed that Paul at this point made it to Spain, though it's never recorded in the Bible, so we can only assume he may have went. And when he returned in approximately 64 AD, according to Titus, Paul would go to Crete, from Crete to Corinth, where he would write the letter to Titus. And according to that letter, after leaving Corinth, traveling through Macedonia, he would land at Neapolis and spend the winter there. The years of, of 65 through 66 AD, Paul would travel all through Macedonia and Asia Minor one last time before he was arrested in Troas in 67 AD. And this would be it for Paul. It's believed Paul's second arrest brought this fourth missionary journey to an end. He was sent to the Mamertine prison, which was a much rougher uh, prison. It was much rougher than being kept on house arrest in, in, in his lodgings. During his second Roman imprisonment, Paul knew the time of his departure from the world was, was near. He, he would write the second letter to Timothy, which tells us he was cared for by Luke. It tells us Nero was, was on a rampage. Um, against Christians in Rome, and his life was, was clearly coming to an end. And if the tradition is true, Paul was beheaded at Nero's order in 67 AD. And with that, the greatest evangelist and missionary of all time was with the Lord. He had finished the race. And at this point, many of the apostles had finished the race. About half the apostles were still alive, but most would be gone in the next decade. Only John would remain. John would live another 30 years where he would spend years in Ephesus pastoring the church. And from there, he'd write the Gospel of John. He'd write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He, was, he would then be exiled to Patmos where he would write Revelation. And he would eventually be released from Patmos back to Ephesus where he, he would die of old age. And this was the early church. This is our story, saints. This is our history. The, the early church rattled and shook the world in the first century after Jesus ascended. You know how this happened? 120 followers totally committed to Jesus Christ, willing and ready to live and die for the cause. It made all the difference. They came in and they turned the world upside down all because they were convinced of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and were willing to tell the world about it no matter the cost. But it didn't happen on accident. It happened because of their intentional lives. They spent their days and nights praying and teaching with tears, the word of God. And look at the effect it had. 
And what does, does this say to us? Everything you heard this season, where are we to preach? Wherever we are. How do we preach? Lovingly, biblically, doctrinally. When do we preach? Promptly, with boldness. To whom do we preach? Everyone. What do we preach? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what will be the results? Some will believe and, and some won't. But we preach and we allow God to do the rest. Remember guys, the Lord is in charge of the harvest. My friends, this is all for this season of Straight Talk with Selene. It's official. This concludes our journey through Acts. Let's come back next season. What will we discover? I don't know. Stay tuned. Follow the journey. But come back. Lord willing, there is so much more to come. And guys, before I go, I need to be continually reminding you and myself to ask ourselves this question. What does this story of God mean to us and what does it mean for us? Who are we in light of God? Friends, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you're following him, the Bible proclaims the following. You're chosen. You're a royal You're part of a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. You and I have been called out of darkness, out of the grave and into his wonderful light, into a life and now we are to be bold proclaimers of his glory. Do you know this? Are you living this? If you are, great. If you're not, it's okay. Most are not. But come back next time because the point of this podcast is to continue to walk this journey together. I'm currently learning myself. But together, we will learn our identity in Christ and we will step into it. My friends, thank you for joining me on this episode of Straight Talk with Celine. I hope our time together has helped you take a small step towards living out the fullness of who you've been called to be. If this episode encouraged and edified you, please take a moment and think of that person that needs to hear this and do me a favor and share it. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors. Let us never forget that the mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. I love you all with the love of Christ. Until next time, take care.